Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 146, The Push of a Button. Now that Commissioner Massou was convinced that Dr. Marcel Petiot was the serial killer, his detectives searched Paris and the many banks and insurance companies therein. Anything that might have the man's name on it or that showed recent or unusual transactions. Something to help track him down. Then another clue came. Well, almost. It seems that there was a woman named Genevieve Cuny who had cleaned Dr. Petio's apartment and office for the last few years. She could be a fountain of information, certainly, if she looked over her time with the doctor with an eye to him being a killer. Alas, she had disappeared three weeks ago. Another cleaner-slash-assistant had been hired, but she knew nothing. Masu could only hope that Cooney was still alive. As the former cleaner was searched for, Masu decided to question the brother Maurice again. At first, the commissioner spoke of inconsequential things. Then, out of the blue... He read out the truck driver Jean Eustache's statement to the police to Maurice. So Maurice sighed again, as if to come clean. Yes, Maurice, along with the driver, had delivered some 400 kilograms of lime to the townhouse. But again, it was for bugs in the attic and to clean the facade. Further, Maurice had not told the truth previously as it would have made him look guilty, or at least suspicious, and he was no killer. He also did not know anything about bodies in his brother's townhouse. Then, perhaps without knowing it, he gave Masu a new piece of information. Of course, Georgette Petiot, the wife, had been to the townhouse. Marcel would never buy that kind of thing without checking with her first. Whereas Georgette had said, She had never been inside before. As Maurice was talking and seemed to be semi-truthful, Massou encouraged him to continue. Maurice told Massou that he was not surprised that the townhouse was disorderly. Marcel was known for picking up items at auctions and then just putting them down somewhere where he worked. There was no rhyme or reason to his storage process. For him... It was all about getting something valuable at a relatively cheap price. And the man kept talking. He finally admitted to being in the triangular room in the townhouse, the one that had the hooks on the walls and the fake doorway. This was where Masu believed the victims had spent their final hours. The brother let it out that he too had found the fake door and that it was strange. He even tried to open it with a crowbar. When he found out the truth, he said he just gave up and did not think about it anymore. And the brother kept talking. He then admitted that he had lied when he told Masu that he had not found out about the discovery of the bodies until Monday, June 13th, but rather two days before was the truth, the actual day of the discovery. While at home, his phone rang, and the person on the other end told him that the bodies had been found at the townhouse. Masu knew that Maurice would not admit it if his brother was the caller, so didn't even bother to ask. 
Instead, the commissioner asked, What did you say once the caller told you of the bodies? Maurice, in a moment of honesty or just more game-playing, said, I wanted to know how the bodies had been discovered. Now, this seemed odd to Masu. Someone calls you and says that there are bodies found, and your first response is, under what circumstances had they been found? Maurice, anticipating the commissioner, swore the caller was not his brother, but would not say who the caller was. Masu, in a few days, would find out that the call had lasted for eight minutes. If Maurice had an informant, that seemed to be a long time to talk to someone who was trying to tip you off. If Maurice believed he was handling this latest round of questioning well, he was disabused of that when Masu had him booked for being an accomplice to the killings. Dr. Marcel Petiot, the butcher of Paris, was the talk of the town. Everyone had their own suspicions as to why the killings were taking place. Theft of money, Petiot was simply insane, or, as most of the victims were female, he was some kind of sexual predator. Which helped Commissioner Massou? None at all. He knew the people of Paris were simply trying to distract themselves from the horrors of the occupation. But at least there was one good outcome of all the rumors— Everyone in Paris was looking for Dr. Petiot. Commissioner Massou was about to get a massive break in his search for Petiot, or rather, almost a break, if it had been pursued. The commissioner and his team returned to 66 Rue Carmenton, Petiot's apartment, where he sometimes saw patients on the ground floor. The other tenants still could not believe that Dr. Petiot was guilty of these heinous crimes and told Massou so, but he just smiled and went about his business. Knowing people so well, he was sure that many of them had their own secrets that would shock the other tenants. Right down the road from the doctor's apartment was a bistro that he had regularly visited for years. The address was 17 Rue d'Arcy. The bistro's relatively new manager, Maria Vick, told Masu that on the night the fire was discovered in the townhouse, the same night the body parts were found, March 11, 1944, a man had come to the bistro and asked to use the phone. It was a quarter after nine at night. She could not say for certain that it was Marcel Petiot, but Masu knew that that was roughly the same time that Maurice had received his phone call that told him of the events at the townhouse. She walked away to give the man privacy, but just before she got out of earshot, she heard him say, Burn the papers. Masu put a trace on the call and would find out that, indeed, the call had gone to Maurice Petiot, which meant that it had to be Marcel that had been at the bistro. This was the best lead Masu had so far, and he intended to run it down. But that meant talking to the bistro's previous owners, Louis and Emily Bazanet, who had run the place from 1935 to the end of 1943, and who had a professional and personal relationship with Dr. Petiot. 
The older couple was tracked down, and they were happy to answer all of Masu's questions, but started their conversation off with, they could not believe that Marcel was the killer. During their conversation, Louis told Masu that he needed to talk to old man Redou, a house painter who could be seen, most days, sharing a drink with Dr. Petio in the afternoons. But for whatever reason, the police would later claim that they could not find this man, a local, so he was not questioned. But the truth was, Dr. Marcel Petio, the butcher of Paris, was hiding out in Georges Redot's small apartment at 83 Rue du Fambourg, just a bit west of Petio's apartment, on the north side of the center of Paris. Later, Redoux and Petio could not agree when the doctor showed up on the former's front door with a suitcase in his hand and a story that he was a part of the resistance on the run from the Gestapo on his lips. It was either just days after the townhouse fire or as much as a week and a half later. Either way, Redoux believed his friend, the doctor, so put down a mattress on his dining room floor. Knowing he was more or less trapped in the apartment, Petio spent his time reading newspapers. The first page was always about him, and the latest rumor about how gruesome his killing spree had been. He also continued reading detective novels, doing crosswords, and listening to covert BBC broadcasts. This last activity was important, as it allowed Petio to entertain his host with his supposed own stories of working with the resistance. During this time, Marcel quit shaving, hoping his burgeoning beard would make him harder to identify by the roaming Parisian eyes. Meanwhile, Commissioner Massou returned to 21 Rue Le Soir. Experience had taught him that it was best sometimes to just walk around the crime scene and let his eyes take in the sights without any preconceived notions clouding his reasoning. Several other men were with him, and Masu decided to use them to put himself in the killer's place. Masu had his secretary stand near the hooks attached to the walls in the triangular-shaped room. Then he went to the other side of the door that had the peephole with a magnifier in it. It was put in by a German company. When Masu stood on something that put his eye level with the hole, he found that his view was on his secretary's face. Now Masu could picture the scene. His victim, probably drugged, would be placed on the hook, obviously in agony, and Petio would be able to watch their pain and confusion as, one, they were drugged, and two, were suffering from the iron hook lodged in their body, which again begged the question, what did the victims die of? There was no blood on the floor, under the hooks, no abuse of the body parts that had been examined, which left poison, but there wasn't enough left over of the body's organs to determine that, which meant that Masu did not have enough information to guess, so he would not, but rather simply wait. As for what happened after the person was dead, 
Masu felt he was on firmer ground here. The body was probably taken to the basement, which held two large sinks. The corpse was cut into pieces, the organs removed, as were the body's identifiers, the hands and face. Further, the fingerprints from the severed hands would be filed off, thus making identification impossible. From there, the bodies, now in parts, would be taken to the lime pits. Time would do the rest. Or, for those body parts in the small stove in the basement, fire would do the rest. But it would be Dr. Paul, the Institute's director, that would tie two rather heinous acts together. Between May of 1942 and January of 1943, body parts, normally stored in trunks, were found in the Seine River. The question was, were these identifying parts removed from Dr. Petio's victims? Dr. Paul believed they were, which was all well and good, but if true, it threw off the whole timeline of Petio's killings as far as Masu thought he understood them. As normal, the Parisian press followed the commissioner around, hounding him with questions. Strangely, the Germans were not. There was no screaming, no, we are taking over the investigation, nor any deadlines given. It was as if they didn't care, which could not be the case. And it was not. The Gestapo, indeed, had a rather thick, impressive file on Dr. Marcel Petio. And on March 15, 1944, just four days after the bodies had been discovered, this file ended up on Massou's desk. As the commissioner read through the thick file, one amazing fact after another fell under his gaze. For one, Petio was under suspicion of leading an organization that helped Allied pilots shot down, Jews, and German soldiers who did not want to be transferred to the Eastern Front of leaving occupied Paris. The day-to-day -day activities of this secret organization seemed to be run by a Raoul, a hairdresser and wig maker, and a cabaret actor, Edmund Pintar. The latter would visit bars and bistros, making contact with those who wanted to leave. The Germans were guessing that these two men worked for Marcel Petiot. Another incredible fact was that the doctor had been held by the Germans for almost eight months. Supposedly, under the name of Dr. Eugene, Marcel Petiot was in charge of this organization, but each time a subunit of the Gestapo used an informant who pretended he wanted to leave the occupied zone, Dr. Eugene was never around. Still, Raoul and Edmund were arrested and brutally questioned. They both admitted to working for Dr. Eugene, who lived at 66 Rue Carmenton. So, on May 21, 1943, the Gestapo burst into Petio's apartment and took him away. Though there is no direct evidence that he was tortured, it's highly doubtful that he escaped such treatment. In the end, though, Petio only confessed to working for someone higher up, Robert Martinetti, who supposedly ran the organization. Marcel's work with this man 
began on November 1st, 1941, but it was only his job to find people and bring them to Martinetti. Further, he could not contact his boss, but only wait for his boss to contact him. As for the details of how these people were smuggled out, Marcel claimed not to know. Dr. Petio's jail time of almost eight months went by, and then, without explanation, he was released on January 13, 1944. Not two months later, the fire and the burnt bodies were found in his townhouse. But what Commissioner Massou could not deduce was why the doctor was released. Yes, his brother Maurice had paid a ransom of 100,000 francs, but that was small potatoes for such things. Had Marcel been turned by the Germans through torture? Was he now working for them? That might explain why the German authorities had been so quiet up to this point. Through the murkiness of it all, though, at least Massou had two other people he could question, the hairdresser and the actor. Now that Dr. Marcel Petiot's name was all over France, people started coming to Massou to tell of their interactions with him. Most of those stories went like this. A couple, in differing ways, would be put in contact with Dr. Petiot, who promised to get them out of occupied France and to Argentina. He would insist that they sell everything they owned and bring as much cash as possible. Next, the doctor would help one of them escape, who would then send back a vaguely worded postcard back to the spouse left behind, normally the wife. Sometimes the wife would pay the fee and have the doctor send her, then neither of them would be heard from again, or the wife would not, and besides the postcard, would never hear from her husband again. Through these conversations, a name kept coming up. René Nézondette, a longtime friend of Dr. Petiot, who was called the doctor's right arm. In fact, René had been arrested the same day as Petiot, back in May of 1943, but was let out a few months before the doctor. Massou put out the word that René should be picked up ASAP. When Massou questioned the actor Raoul, the story that unfolded filled in many of the missing pieces, not that the commissioner was any closer to picking up the wanted man. Raoul had been a patient of Dr. Petiot's for about four years, before the physician casually stated that if the actor knew of anyone who wanted to leave Paris, arrangements could be made. As Raoul was promised a finder's fee, the two started working together. As Raoul had worked in a hairdresser shop, he had his finger on the pulse of Paris. One such wannabe escapee was a gangster, Joe the Boxer. He had worked for the Germans for a few years and had become rich but was now hated by his fellow Frenchmen. In time, Petio helped Joe, his associate, and two of their lady friends leave France, and they had only known Petio as Dr. Eugene. So there was one more mystery solved. Of course, they were never seen or heard from again. The question was, did Petio ever really help 
anyone leave the country? Or were they all now disintegrating in one of his lime pits? A few weeks after the French gangster's departure, Raoul saw that Dr. Petiot was wearing Joe's gold watch. He assumed, as he told the commissioner, that it had been a part of the payment. But Massou's assumption was much darker. As for the hairdresser and makeup artist, Edmond, he either knew much less, just let his business be used as a meeting place, or tried to get out of the questions by reminding the commissioner of his preeminence in his field. Massou was unimpressed, but got little new information from the puffed-up showman. A few days later, Marcel Petiot's oldest friend, René Nézondet, was found and brought to Massou for questioning. At first, René was untalkative, but after allowed to stew for a few days, he began to answer the commissioner's questions. Still, these answers were half-hearted. Not until March 22nd, 11 days after the bodies had been discovered, did René seem to break down and agree to answer truthfully. But only because Massou had made it clear that René wasn't going to be released any time soon, not until they talked. René had been in inconsistent contact with Marcel for the last few years, but in late 1943, René met with Maurice, the brother, on a business adventure, namely to buy some of Maurice's radio equipment. But when the brother showed up, he was more nervous than René had ever seen him be before. Pushed as to why he was anxious, Marcel was still being held by the Germans at this time, Maurice broke down and explained that he had discovered numerous corpses at 21 Rue Le Soir. There had to be at least 50 naked bodies, many suitcases, and a notebook that seemed to list all of the names of the victims and when they had been killed. And then came what Massou wanted to know most of all, how the people were killed. Maurice explained to René that the victims would be locked in the triangular room. On one of the walls was a button. Marcel just knew it was only a matter of time before the trapped, desperate person would push the button, just to see what would happen. In truth, when the button was pressed, a small needle inside of it would emerge, just enough to prick the victim's finger, thereby injecting the poison. This somehow comforted Marcel that he wasn't actually the one administering the poison. The people, though unknowingly, was doing it to themselves. For Masu, one more question had been answered. Next, the commissioner asked how much Georgette Petiot knew of her husband's activities. The answer was predictable. The why was not. She, René said, knew it all, but only because he had told her soon after he found out in late 1943. Of course, when the wife was questioned afterward, she confirmed René's story, but insisted that she did not believe a word of it then, that René was simply trying to frighten her away from 
her husband in order to get her to run away with him. Masu again questioned Georgette's honesty, but only to himself. Anything else would have probably triggered another fainting spell. But then the entire enterprise, if that's what it can be called, seemed to be coming apart. Just as the Germans were about to release Marcel in early 1944, René told Maurice that he had told Georgette everything. So Maurice told Marcel that his wife now knew all. Hence, Marcel invited René to 21 Rue Le Soir to explain everything. But now René was terrified of his best friend and so stayed away, which is probably why he was still alive. Before things could come to a head, though, the bodies had been discovered at the townhouse. Masu felt that he now had enough of the picture to break down Marcel once he had him in his interrogation room, should the doctor deny everything. The question was, again, where was Marcel Petiot? Had he fled Paris, or France for that matter? Had he used his own contacts to make his way to Argentina? No, Masu thought, probably not. In fact, the commissioner doubted that Marcel had ever been a part of any resistance movement. The monster was taking advantage of the victim's fear of the Germans and the money they were able to scrape together in order to try to save their families. A monster indeed. <laughs> 